0: So welcome to um, the, all the participants here today for the IASUSA dialogue, COVID-19 meets HIV, a focus on health disparities. I'm Wendy Armstrong, I'm a professor of medicine at Emory University and I'm here with my colleague, Carlos Del Rio. Carlos, do you wanna introduce yourself?
1: Yes, uh, good afternoon and good evening uh, to those in, in the East Coast. Wendy, I'm Carlos Del Rio. I'm here work also on professor of medicine and, and global health and epidemiology here at Emory University. Uh, also working down at Grady Hospital.
0: Great. Well, I'm excited to spend the next hour um, with you um, discussing HIV and healthcare disparities um, with COVID-19. Our goal um, this uh, evening is to spend about 40 minutes um, with Dr. Del Rio and I uh, dialoguing um, about these topics and then uh, 20 minutes um, of question and answer following that. Um, For the audience, uh, uh, please use the Q&A button to ask questions. The chat uh, function has been disabled, and so the questions will come through Q&A. Thank you so much for the questions that you've already sent in. I do want to remind you that this dialogue is not available for CME, but it will be available as a web and podcast after the live broadcast. Um, I will also add the warning that anything that we say about COVID-19 may actually change in uh, 24 or 72 hours given the pace of the news cycle and the data coming in, but we will certainly tell you what we think is accurate right now. Um, For any further information, please feel free to visit the IASUSA website at www.iasusa.org. Uh, Let's start out actually with finding um, out where um, people uh, who have joined us are from. We know that COVID um, and HIV have both differentially hit the country in different um, places in different ways. Um, And so if you guys could feel free to enter into the poll right here what time zone you are in so that we have a sense of um, our audience. All right, so 58% of you are from the eastern US, leading the pack um, in the evening uh, time zone, I guess when people are free, um, followed by the Pacific US at 19%, uh, 11% in the central US, and uh, the mountain states are coming in behind. Um, So I think uh, both of us sit in the eastern time zone, so that's uh, 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 easy for us to uh, relate to. Carlos, do you have any um, initial thoughts? You have a long career um, in HIV um, and a shorter career in COVID-19, but clearly it's been a very interesting intersection of these two epidemics.
1: Yes, I think it's been uh, fascinating. And I think there are two two things. First of all, I think some of us got interested and started looking at COVID-19 because we are in infectious disease. This is what we train for. We're excited about epidemics. We're excited about new things. We're excited about learning how things take off, and you know I had been involved in the 2009 in pandemic, and it was really interesting to see how this was evolving. But I would I would say honestly that I did not think it was going to be what it is right now. But then it started to get very interesting when we started to think about how would this and HIV superimpose. And I, I'm I just want to show one slide that I got from the NIH uh, recently, and I think it's a useful slide because it just shows in our country where we stand currently with HIV and where we are with COVID uh, patients. And you know, granted, there's about a million, three million, four people living with HIV. There's now about, you know, 2.3, 2.4 million people that have had COVID. Not many of them are living with COVID because, you know, again, you get infected and then you get better or you or you die. But the number of infections, but one thing that strikes you is how this superimposition and how we, you know, what this disease, very much like HIV, started in the in the northern U.S. and in the West Coast, it's very rapidly moved to the South. So I think it it's almost feels like HIV, but in, in a very fast pace, right? What took years to happen and HIV is happening in, in months here in in in, a, in COVID. And a lot of things are similar and a lot of things are different. So when we started seeing patients with COVID, I think, you know, I remember calling you and saying what's happening at, at, at the Pond Center, you, you direct one of the biggest clinics in the, in the US, 6,000 plus patients, and, and you were scrambling. You were really dealing with, you know, there was an, a potential outbreak, there were patients, there were staff, and you really rapidly moved into, into models. So not only did you see this, but you also adjusted care so patients wouldn't suffer. So tell us a little bit about the initial experience with caring with patients.
0: Yeah, so I um, am the medical director of um, our, HIV, our large HIV AIDS clinic um, in Atlanta. That is a Ryan White funded clinic that cares for our un- and underinsured patients. And so we see living in the south, um, in the midst of the epidemic, we see a, a significant cohort of individuals with late stage AIDS and with uncontrolled HIV, as well as um, a group with a more stable disease. And so certainly early on, um, there were a variety of things that were making us very nervous. The first, of course, being, how is this gonna impact our population? Um, And and our feeling was that we had an incredibly vulnerable population. um, And so we were very, very nervous. Um, I think uh, uh, very early, we took steps to try and restructure the clinic. Um, we, We also felt like we were sitting at an intersection where um, on the one hand, we would love to tell everyone to stay home and ramp up telemedicine rapidly, which is um, part of what we did. But on the other hand, we had a lot of patients who rely on our monthly medications and the only place that they can receive them is in the clinic um, because of the lack of insurance. And so we um, uh, We're struggling with the fact that we didn't want patients to fall out of care and to um, to uh, fall off medications and have Um, a a different cause of death for people. We were nervous enough about the the, the direct effects of COVID-19 not to have patients um, also die of untreated HIV. And so there was the stress of how is this going to impact our patient population and how are we going to keep the clinic doors open in a way that was safe but limit the patients that came in to those who um, most needed to be there. And I think the really um, fascinating thing for us, uh, I think we learned lessons on both sides. There and one thing we can talk about is what we've seen and what uh, the country and the world have seen with respect to HIV and COVID-19 that intersection, which is um, clearly an evolving and fascinating story where uh, all the answers are not in yet. And the second um, is how did we adapt to this and what have we learned about providing patient-centered care to patients um, uh, that was forced to happen more quickly because of a COVID-19 pandemic. But what do we take out of that um, into the future to better care for our HIV patients, um, uh, including those that were um, had more barriers to care? Uh, and, and, and so I think it's been um, really, really fascinating.
1: You know, I think there are a couple of things also to me very interesting. One of them is very early on in CDC and another site, we saw HIV as a risk factor because you said, you talk right now about a vulnerable population, right? We thought like immunosuppression, this would be, and we would see a lot of patients because we have a, a large, you know, large HIV population here in Atlanta. But what was also becoming interesting to me is that the literature wasn't full of reports of patients with HIV. In fact, there was a very scanned literature. So it almost appeared like either HIV was not a risk factor or we weren't picking it up. And I think what we have learned so far, and correct me if you think differently, is that the vulnerability that you mentioned, the vulnerability of our patients, is actually not their HIV, but is their social vulnerability. It is that that puts them at high risk. So that I think then takes you to the whole issue of, okay, you know, it's, it's all about health disparities. It's all about what puts people, what how health inequities impact HIV are also impacting COVID. And that to me really brings it around, you know, a 180 degree way right it is not the patients many of the patients we're seeing coming in with covid actually have controlled hiv but it's 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 covid that is bringing them in and it's not because of hiv it is because of their social and other structural issues that we can talk about but really the literature has been i think i think it's beginning to be pretty consistent that it doesn't look like hiv maybe there's one article for south africa suggesting that there's higher risk but the other articles are really not suggesting a higher risk for hiv right
0: well, I think, that, um, I think that I agree with you that the social disparities that we see with our patients magnify COVID. Um, I, I still think the story is not in on whether there are, um, there are some risk associated with HIV. And I think if there is, my, my hunch is that that's gonna be mediated by um, uh, increased comorbidities in, uh, in patients living with HIV um, uh, with uh, increased earlier rates of coronary disease and hypertension and hyperlipidemia Um, and so on, and certainly those are the um, populations or those are the patients that have been at risk or that have had more serious outcomes when you look at the series that had been published around the world. And although the South African paper that you just mentioned tried to control for some of that and still showed an increased risk of um, hospitalization and death with HIV, um, uh, uh, I suspect um, the, the rest of that story is probably social disparities. That's what we saw. I will say that I have almost not seen a a case. I'm sure they're there. I'm sure they're out there. But um, again, uh, working in a clinic where a significant percentage of our population has late-stage HIV AIDS and uh, uncontrolled virus, we have just not seen patients um, uh, with late-stage AIDS and, and, and viremia coming in with COVID. It is again our more stable patients um, who have been living with HIV for longer, um, with comorbidities that have had challenges, and so I'm fascinated um, by the fact that the immunosuppression that comes from uncontrolled HIV is not does not seem to be uh, the issue at all.
1: No, I agree with you, and I wonder how much you know. You talk about comorbidities, but how much of also is the, sort of this premature aging aging we see in HIV this inflammation that may lead for patients with HIV to, to actually be older in their immunological system and therefore maybe at higher risk of COVID and complications because, you know, somebody 40 years old with HIV may actually be more like a 60 year old with with COVID. So I think that's also something of the immunosenescence is something that we looked at. But I wanna turn around a little bit now to talk about, because of course the other component is, very early on we started hearing about the use of, of HIV medications, right? You know, uh, lopinavir, ritonavir looked like the drug we wanted to use and, Everybody said, "Oh, this is the solution." And among the many things we have heard about in the treatment of COVID, that's one of the many that obviously didn't work. But you know, we continue to hear of of antiretrovirals. We continue to hear about benefits, and I guess we 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 have to we have to stop and make a comment about this recent paper just published in Annals of Internal Medicine, right? It suggests that if you're on TAF, you do better than you're in in in, in, in yeah. And you know, what do you think about it?
0: Yeah, so it is interesting that the suggestion was that TDF-FTC um, was protective over TAF-FTC or a back of your 3TC as a backbone. And certainly there is some um, in vitro data that suggests that some of the nucleosides and nucleotides may have some activity. Although, boy, I say that with a lot of trepidation because I think we don't know that there's actually real clinical activity at all. Um, however, I think the, the key with that paper that you mentioned before everyone flocks to, um, Switching folks from TAF FTC to TDF FTC um, is uh, that we, what, who do we use TDF in anymore? We use it in folks without comorbidities, without underlying renal disease, without underlying bone disease, without underlying, you know, often uh, their uh, comorbidities. And so I think that the fact that that paper has not yet, and although they announced their intention to control for comorbidities, but the fact that they did not yet. Um, puts that uh, result uh, making TDF-FTC look more protective than other nucleosides in in doubt. Um, I I, I sincerely hope that we don't now see a uh, hydroxychloroquine type run on um, Truvada as a pre-exposure prophylaxis for COVID um, uh, in all people, the way that we did with Black Widow.
1: It would help them to avoid getting HIV
0: Yes, that, that there are reasons that we would, wouldn't mind a run on uh, Truvada. I think I would be, you know,
1: we can get our African American uh, young young men to take Truvada. I would be happy if they think it's protecting them from COVID, but it will protect them from HIV. So maybe there is something to be said there. Maybe there's a, a rumor to be spread. You know, <laughs> but no, it's it's to me it's been fascinating, and I think it, you know it continues to be how how little yet we know about COVID and how how much we're looking for for opportunities, for for prophylaxis, for treatments, for things to help our patients. And uh, and the, the, the relationship to HIV, the the fact that, you know, calitra and, and tenofovir and other drugs are being looked at, to me is just uh, fascinating because it would really not make, I mean, from a viral, you know, a number, a number, not, I'm not a virologist, but you really need to think in a very, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense that they would work in those settings, right? So uh-huh. the, uh, the other issue that, that strikes me, you know, as we as we talk about it, uh, uh, COVID, is, is obviously how how we have just realized what an impact health disparities have. And we've always, you and I have always talked about health disparities and HIV and how it's driving the epidemic. But boy, this epidemic of COVID is really, really thriving on health disparities and really showing us those enormous health disparities that exist in our country. And it almost, it almost feels like now or never, we either take health disparities seriously. Or we're not going to be able to get over what what appears to be a very severe uh, pandemic and And uh, Your
0: slide showed that right, Carlos? Um, I mean the mirroring of the HIV epidemic and the COVID epidemic um, In uh, the regions that you showed really uh, to me highlights the fact that disparities play a very significant role in both of those epidemics.
1: Yeah, and I, I, you know, I want to maybe do some some shameless advertising, but I want to I want to show to people so they are aware this uh, this website, uh, you know, covid19.emory.edu. Uh, it's a it's a website put by some colleagues here at at Emory, including myself and others, looking at COVID and health disparities. And you can click into any state, and you can click into any county, and once you get to the state, you can click in a county, and it will tell you what percentage of the population. It's African American, Hispanic. is obese, has diabetes, has poverty, has uninsurance. insurance. And again, you, you come to the conclusion that you know if you think about Fulton County, where where we have our clinic and everything, and we see cases rapidly going up in Fulton County, you start seeing that you know it's African Americans, it's people in poverty, it's people. You know, you start really seeing how these two epidemics uh, superimpose, and how how this health disparities are driving a lot of what we're seeing. And I just worry that that we we definitely, I think this is a good opportunity to think about how do we address, as we think about addressing COVID, how do we not miss the opportunity to also link it to addressing HIV? Because let's not forget, we were supposed to be ending the HIV epidemic, right? We were, and, and we are in one of, we're, we are sitting in in, a, in an area that has four of the 48 counties that were targeted for the end of the HIV epidemic. So uh, what do you think we ought to do to think about those things? I mean, how do we make sure that we both diseases are stigmatizing. They're a little different, but at the same time, they're running in the same population. So, how do we use that opportunity in, a, in an effective way?
0: Well, I think actually there's a number of things we can do, and uh, and I, I know what part of what you're thinking. But just to add a couple other things into the mix, you know, almost anything we think of that would help with um, uh, reducing disparities in COVID. Obviously, the thing the, the most important things that we can do are eliminating. You know. Uh, structural racism and a variety of other, you know, very hard problems that we need as a country to work toward over a long term. But in the short run, you know, what kinds of things can we do to try and mitigate some of the disparities? Um, and uh, uh, among those, there almost always are things that would help us with HIV as well. So for example, um, how many patients have I seen now um, in my clinic who have COVID, who's to tell, and I'll say. Uh, you don't need hospitalization, go home and isolate yourself. Um, and they'll say, you know, there's seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people living in my, you know, few room house. How do you think I'm gonna isolate myself? So again, just like um, housing options for quarantine are important in COVID, we also know that housing period is healthcare for HIV, uh, that that is uh, an area of stability. And so th- that's one thing that we could provide. Another, for example, that we, um, talk about all the time is you know, uh, uh, you know we have seen now several series where um, uh, uh, there are clearly disproportionate there's disproportionate effects on our um, Black American population our Latinx population with COVID um, but some of those also show that at the time of admission that uh, symptoms um, are worse and you know, it makes you uh, suspicious that in fact that, uh, that uh, healthcare access remains uh, is a challenge um, for more vulnerable uh, and minority populations. And so why aren't we moving, again, more outreach into the community? Um, Why don't we have acute respiratory centers that are stationed in um, underserved areas where, um, again, our uh, uh, African-American and Latinx populations can quickly get care and get testing, for example. And again, it's that kind of outreach that would also help us with HIV, where we uh, expect people to come to brick and mortar clinics instead of going out um, to the population and providing care where the people are. But I suspect you also want to talk a little bit about contact tracing um, between HIV and COVID, which I think represents an awesome opportunity.
1: Well, and I want to talk also about testing, right? As we we ramp up testing, and as we think, you know, I mean, the, the, the testing infrastructure, the way we're testing for COVID, which is through PCR, that testing infrastructure exists in our country because we built it for HIV. If we hadn't been doing viral load testing as a routine part of care, we would not have the big Roche and Abbott and other machines in our in our laboratories that are used to running PCRs all the time as part of their sort of this as part of clinical care for us to, to get a viral load. And I think now we're using it for COVID. But it's the same, you know, the CFARC laboratories. A lot of labs are now saying, "Hey, I, I'm going to start doing COVID because." But how do we now, as we ramp up COVID testing, how can we use the opportunity to also get into that same community and say, hey, you know, not only are we drawing blood to do, I mean, not only are we doing a a nasal swab for for your COVID, but we can also draw blood and do an HIV test, or we can also do an oral swab and do an HIV test. And how can we potentially be looking at both diseases and, and looking at more of, you know, of, of entire health, right? We can look at your, hemoglo- at your hemoglobin A1C, you have diabetes, do your weight, do hypertension, and really think about improving the health of the community, not just targeting one disease and dealing with one disease again stigmatizing people. We're really saying we want community health to improve. We really want to see how we can use this opportunity to bring about a healthy community. I'm not sure if that will ever happen, but boy, it will be so nice that we actually don't go into a community just to address one issue and then get out of there like if we were a surgeon taking out an appendix, right? We really think about how do we get there long-term. And I, I think in, in in global health, we learned that when we do bit things poorly is when we just sort of this, do this helicopter, going in, doing something and getting out of the community is really building that trust and that relationship over time that actually helps. So maybe there's a lesson there. Maybe there's something that acutely will take care of this problem, but how can we build you know, in a more long-term, because you know, COVID, hopefully in a year or two, may not necessarily be a big problem, but HIV will continue to be a problem and diabetes will continue to be a big problem and hypertension will continue to be a problem in the same community. And I just hope we, we don't abandon the communities, right? We took care of COVID and now we're back to where we were, but we really think about, is this an opportunity to actually improve and address health disparities in a way that quite frankly, we've never really taken and done seriously in our country. And I think we are realizing how, you know, you know, again, to me and also the relationship of of infectious disease and non-communicable diseases, how diabetes, obesity, hypertension is impacting the the infectious disease. So how can we also partner with our colleagues who work in diabetes and and hypertension and and non-communicable diseases to actually work together and not just do vertical programs that address one disease independently of the others?
0: Yeah, no, I think um, our patients always um, are appreciative and respond to the um, as they should you know as as makes sense to the sense the feeling that um, we are you know we as a society are investing in um, in, in individuals' health that 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 person is is cared about that uh, that um, that how well they're doing is important to um, us overall that they're a valuable member of the community and I think um, as you said um, and, and and as has been shown again in uh, in uh, global studies as well. Um, when we invest in the community, when we show an interest in health overall, it's also tremendously destigmatizing. It's tremendously destigmatizing to get an HIV test if you're also getting your blood pressure checked, your hemoglobin A1C and your COVID test. Um, And uh, uh, we have such a, a, a wonderful opportunity, I think, to start to rebuild what is a decimated public health infrastructure in this country um uh through the impetus that is um covet 19 and the um you know national um you know interest that that has generated um it's the same argument again for why we really uh again need to think about uh refunding our um uh departments of public health and the cdc and so so much of our infrastructure that is decayed at this point and it will help us um not only with hiv and COVID, but again um the health of our population overall
1: so one thing that I wanna ask you and, and have a, a sort of a discussion about is, is what do you think is gonna happen as a result of COVID with, with the HIV care continuum, with, with our goals to end the epidemic? Are we gonna end this and say, oh my God, we've gone back so much. I mean, I'm worried about, you know, less testing, less linkage to care, less prep. But what do you see, what do you think? Or is there an opportunity that actually this may not be that, 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 that so dire?
0: Yeah, honestly, I think there's going to be two sides to the coin and um, I think many of us have spent a lot of time thinking about this. I will tell you when this started, I thought the end the epidemic initiative was over, that we were going to step back a decade. Um, And I think that in some uh, areas that that we will um, be hurt. Uh, We know that HIV testing has shut down in many jurisdictions, that there were outreach events that just haven't happened, that clinics stopped doing HIV testing, considering it not essential care and so on. I think we've taken a hit there. I think we've taken a hit with testing for sexually transmitted infections. Um, That requires individuals to come in. um, And and that kind of sampling is difficult when you're trying to keep, uh, when patients are afraid of coming to healthcare settings. Uh, On the other hand, I think we've done some really fantastic things that that actually may make a huge difference. One of them, and I think um, anyone on this call who is in healthcare right now will be nodding um, along is telemedicine, you know, we finally have really jumpstarted telemedicine. I've, the VA has been ahead of us for years in this um, area. Some clinics were really clairvoyant in doing telemedicine, but most of us weren't. And uh, telemedicine um, allows um, us to meet the patient where they are. It takes away the barrier often of transportation. It takes away sometimes, it lets us do more non-traditional hours in a, in a more cost-efficient way. And so it takes away the barriers of work hours and things like that. Um, I think telemedicine, uh, our adolescent patients respond to incredibly well. They absolutely loved telemedicine and did not have the stigmatizing experience that they feel that it is coming into a brick and mortar clinic. Um, so uh, telehealth is huge. Um, uh, I will say that it doesn't obviate the need to have patients come in at times. And I will say my older patients, um, the ones that I saw this week, who my last visit with them was a telehealth visit said wow that was fine but i'm so glad to see you in person now i really needed to just be here seeing you so i I think it's going to work differently for different populations but i do think um, for some of our patients it's going to be a game changer another thing that we've done is uh, uh, at least in our own clinic we started mailing out medications for even for our uninsured patients and so to have um, uh, mail order medications not only for our insured patients but really for everyone is another game changer. Uh, The effort to get into clinic at the 30 day mark, plus or minus one or two days to be able to pick up those meds was actually crippling for a lot of people. And so um, we have filled as many prescriptions um, uh, through this pandemic as we did before, despite a dramatic reduction in the number of labs drawn and the number of visits. And that was something we were very proud of and I think is another game changer. A third important game changer that I think advocacy will be important to preserve is the um, loosening of requirements from the Ryan White HIV AIDS program to allow us to continue to have people enrolled without bringing in as much paperwork. Um, Many of these were local jurisdictional requirements, but, uh, but to put our patients through less, to be able to stay in care and to have that last for longer, very, very, very important um and i think uh something that needs to continue if we're going to make progress for ending the epidemic into the future Um, and then uh, many places um, we're able to take advantage of 90-day medication supplies and that's another um, huge piece i think if we can do that if we can add in um, home prep um, mail order prep um, mail order um, self uh, sti testing with uh, with swabs dropped off at a pharmacy or at a clinic, not a pharmacy, but a clinic or a lab testing place. Um, I think there's a number of things we can build on to make this even better, but I think there can be some some uh, real opportunities to make progress that we haven't seen in a long time for the uh, end the epidemic initiative.
1: No, I agree with you and, and I've just mentioned, so it gives you a big smile, one of our colleagues who was listening, Melody Palmer just said, maybe we could just rethink the healthcare infrastructure again, you know, and include building a, a community uh, approach with, with outreach providers, navigators, nutritionists that goes to the community and to the neighborhood. So they are seen as 24 seven as part of the community as opposed to having the hospital or clinic in a high rise that is 30 to 40 minutes from the neighborhood. And, you know, I couldn't agree more. I think this is an opportunity to to actually break down. I think one thing that COVID has done is is break down the walls of the clinic and, and, and make it and, and, and decrease the regulations that, that were, that were i think you know the urgency has been the the, the you know the crisis is the mother of this of, of change of change and we've been able to do some things in ways that i think we would have never been able to do had not there been a crisis and i think we need to take advantage of that
0: uh, there's another comment there i see also though telemedicine's fine for some of the population what about those who don't have the appropriate technology boy that's really important and while i think um, the fact also that reimbursement for video visits and telephone visits uh, are nearly equivalent is very helpful and telephone visits are an option uh, for some um, who don't have appropriate technology. I think part of Brian White funding and part of some of these other uh, funding streams will require phones with um, small data plans um, as part of that because I agree that appropriate technology, um, uh, at least a smartphone or a phone, um, uh, is uh, important. Um, I think there's some very easy platforms. Doximity is one that offers a very easy platform for a video visit with um, a, a smartphone. But then the, we we know that there are huge areas of this country, rural areas that don't have good internet connections. And so, um, so yes, telemedicine will not be an option for everybody and we need to remember that.
1: Yeah, but hopefully something that we can work towards. You know, one thing that I was going to also ask you, because I know this is a big you know, passion of yours and, and and is connected to all this is is what are the opportunities to to reinvigorate the the uh the interest in the training in infectious disease and in HIV medicine and how do we use this opportunity to really you know tap into what I see is an enormous interest in social justice among medical students and and trainees to use this as an opportunity to really change what we're we're seeing.
0: Yeah, no, I think um, uh, I think it's very funny because I get sort of two questions. Um, one is people who are become not questions, but people who are incredibly enthusiastic about infectious disease, having watched um, this epidemic and having watched the role infectious disease doctors play um, in it, and um, and the um, and their uh, involvement with social justice issues and so on. The second um, are a smaller but present group of people who say to me, why in the world would you ever do infectious disease after seeing this kind of thing? Most people I think are pretty excited and I will say medical students as a whole are some of the most um, uh, optimistic and uh, uh, incredible advocates and are tuned into uh, issues of social justice um, disparities in care and so on in, in, in a really exciting way. And so the important thing is to keep them interested. Um, I think that there are so many opportunities to um, to talk about, I mean, what what else have we seen in recent years where you can show this time frame of bench research to bedside application um, in an incredibly short period of time, in you know a fraction of the time it took with HIV, for example, um, to show that science matters that. Um, being a physician and applying science to um, take care matters, to watching uh, the development of a vaccine, hopefully over the next year or so. Um, and, and so I think uh, if we teach that and if we show it and if we point those things out, I think we will have more people interested in infectious disease. Um, and I think it will invigorate the workforce. Um, I, 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 I'm excited about that.
1: I think another component that I want to mention is, related to telehealth, is actually how we've learned uh, to do research in very different ways during this pandemic, right? We've learned how to do distance consent. We've learned how to do you know, remote consent. We've learned how to do uh, you know, televisits for research. We've learned how to do so many things that in the past would have cons- been considered absolutely, simply n- no-nos in, in the research world. But I think research has also adapted, and research, I think, will be transformed beyond uh COVID and beyond I mean maybe you know some of our HIV research is going to turn more like COVID in which we we won't need I mean I have found it you know very hard for example doing studies like you know HPTN and 3 that you have to bring people in and you have to do that when we can do a lot of those visits through telehealth. but you can do a lot of I mean again healthy volunteers having them spend a day in a clinic is is not necessarily the best use of our time so I think also other research may be transformed as a result of COVID and I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful of that. You know, one person here is, is saying, and I think it's an important comment, is, you know, we've been able to do MPEP and use pre-starts and HIV care and, and HCV uh, treatment via telehealth, but we're worried about insurers uh, not paying for it, stop reimbursing. How about advocacy? And, you know, again, advocacy has been, advocacy, it's at the heart of what we do in HIV. And I think we've been able to advance HIV because advocacy from the very beginning was critical, whether it was ACT UP, whether it was you know, uh, you know all the different people that made HIV where it is right now. But HIV continues to be advocacy, continues to be critical. And how do we make sure that we we do not lose advocacy? And I think again, I will have to mention that that this is something that both of us care a lot about.
0: Yeah, and I agree that um, we need to keep uh, advocacy over so many of these advances, including telemedicine. I think. Um, I'm really encouraged that telephone visits as well as video visits, because I worry about the technology for video visits um, have at the moment been reimbursed similarly. That needs to stay, but I will say that I'm encouraged that it may not be such a hard sell because there has been um, such widespread enthusiasm in uh, physicians in every single field of medicine um, that uh, say that telehealth is here to stay and in um, healthcare systems. And so um, so I, I'm hopeful that that piece won't require such a, so much advocacy, such a fight to maintain, but we'll see and if if, uh, if not, I think we, we all need to mobilize as uh, as caregivers.
1: You know when I think about advocacy, I, I think you know recently we lost Larry Kramer, who was just you know an amazing advocate in what he accomplished, and I sometimes when I'm seeing this epidemic and what I'm seeing quite frankly, what I think it's a very i mean I think the u s deserves a grade of F in, in, the, in the national response to COVID. We simply have not had a national strategy. We are where we are because, you know, because we really have not taken things seriously from, from the top down, uh, whether it's the president or governors or others. You know, I sometimes wonder what would Larry, you know, Kramer have done in, in, if, if he was around in, in COVID, you know, and, and we need a Larry Kramer. We need an advocate. We need people to really start screaming and saying, Change things, so so I do think that one of the things that I would like to see learn from HIV into the COVID epidemic is actually the importance of advocacy and the importance of, quite frankly, almost the act up equivalent to 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 turn things around. Right? We're having some discussions that simply, you know, w- you know, would have made the advocates furious around around uh, around a uh, uh, COVID that simply need to end. That I think we 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 as scientists and as as providers like to do advocacy, but but we need that that advocacy from the community. And I I just hope that that it it, it turns out quickly because we desperately need it.
0: And yeah, I think we need that advocacy again around the disparities. I, I um, have certainly, you know, um, certainly I think sometimes it's important to make sure that those that many understand that the the light, the reason that we see such disproportionate effects of both of these epidemics um, in our um, uh, Black American and uh, Latinx populations is associated with structural racism and with stigma. And it is not, um, uh, I, I hear too often, oh, those folks must not be wearing masks. Those folks must not be practicing safe sex if you're talking about HIV and so on and really not acknowledging the, the, the really core issues um, that are present. And um, uh, right from who are our essential workers and how much, uh, uh, what is uh, crowding and how much can people protect themselves um, based on other circumstances. And I hope that we bring that to bear with advocacy as well.
1: You know, I think there are a couple of really good comments and questions here that I'm gonna mention. Uh, you know, somebody says, it seems to me that as a physician Uh, in the community, we need to highlight the massive failure of government public health leadership to control the U.S. epidemic. All this is needed to, you know, all we need to do is just compare the epidemic curves in the U.S. and in Europe. And I I, I agree, I think we as physicians have a role to play and, you know, uh, I try to do it, whether it's speaking to the media, whether it's being on on Twitter and other platforms, but really we have to, we have to call people accountable and we have to really say, and we have to quite frankly, push the envelope because, There are things that we could be doing today that we're simply not doing uh, to control this epidemic. And, And again, you know, it's funny because you're, I'm in meetings and I hear people say, well, you know, face masks are difficult because behavior is difficult. Well, you know, we've been talking about behavior change in HIV for years. It's not like this is something new, right? So we also need the behavioral scientists at the table helping us to figure out how do we change behavior. And our colleague, Julia Marcus has written a really nice piece about how do we think about behavior change in, 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 in COVID and apply, what are the lessons from HIV that we can apply to COVID as we, as we try to, to tell people what to do and what not to do. Uh, do you think there's an opportunity to work with the Black Lives Matter movement in order to help uh, in, in advocacy?
0: Yeah, no, I think, um, I think we must work with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, to help with advocacy. I think uh, um, that that absolutely um, is uh, marrying two sort of very powerful themes together um, that clearly are intertwined. Um, I think uh, uh, we need to work together in all kinds of ways. Um, I think also here, Carlos, uh, I'd love to hear your comments um, as well. Uh, uh, There's a comment here, I haven't heard a lot about the need for participation in clinical trials in diverse communities for the benefit of treatment to be fully effective. All people need to participate and providers have to make their patients aware of this. We know some of the challenges of recruiting for clinical trials in diverse communities, but we also know that many people don't reach out to diverse communities to recruit. Um, you have led many, many clinical trials. You have some comments there.
1: No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think I also worry about as we are, you know, it'll be in six weeks we're gonna be starting rolling in in a vaccine study. And you know, we're talking about an efficacy, a phase three vaccine study with the with the Moderna vaccine. And you know, we have to enroll uh, black and brown people and we have to uh, go toward the most effective communities and trust is gonna be critical. I mean, how do you get them interested in, in a clinical trial? How do you do that? And I think that those of us doing HIV uh, uh, research, I would say have a little bit of an upper hand in that because at least for the years that I've been doing HIV treatment and prevention research, I've been working with that community. I have a community advisory board in our research we have trust in the community. We have, you know, I'm very proud to say that in in HPTN 083, this is, a, as you know, a very important and sort of a pivotal HIV prevention uh, research study. You know, in the U.S., more than 50% of the participants were were Black, were African American, and I think that was intentional. And we work hard to make that happen. And it wasn't about recruiting the easiest participants; it was recruiting the right participants that was the mandating that we all really tried to do. And it was was not easy, but at the same time, it was not, uh, it was a very important effort and the right thing to do. So I would say that I hope that as we continue to do the studies and we do the COVID vaccine studies, for example, I hope that the urgency to get the study done doesn't prevent us from developing the community relationships that you need to develop. And that's my only concern that the funders and the government and the company is going to say no 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 just just get it done just enroll people and and if we don't do the right community engagement to get the trust of the community in the most affected community like the african american and the hispanics they're simply not going to get enrolled and they're going to be excluded and i think that's going to be wrong so i think doing the stu- study right is going to require that we that it reflects the affected community and it's 60% of the people infected in this country, African-American, and 20% or 30% are Hispanic. They need to be represented equally in the, in the vaccine studies that we're going to be doing. Otherwise, I think we have failed as investigators in responding to the epidemic in the community.
0: No, absolutely. And I think um, uh, one of the questions, what are you doing about educating patients about taking a vaccine that's so new? Are you having education sessions, um, particularly for black and brown communities? Um, I think uh, uh, those will be absolutely necessary and uh, will require um, tremendous trust, as you mentioned, but transparency as well. There's um, so much concern about um, using a, a, a new vaccine um, that has uh, does not have a track record um, and to be transparent about what that is, how it works, how we think it works, um, what the potential side effects are. And, uh, and so on is, is going to be absolutely critical.
1: So I think it's going to be also uh, important that we, we remind people that we don't know if the vaccine works. So at the end of the day, that we need to continue providing them you know, face masks and providing them. It's no different than doing HIV prevention research, right? When When I enroll somebody in HIV prevention study, I always tell them, My goal is that the study fails, and they look at me like saying, what? I said, yeah, I don't want anybody to get infected, whether in the control or in the the, the intervention arm. My goal is to give you the prevention interventions necessary for nobody to get infected, because that's when we're serving you. This is not just about doing the research. This is really about improving the health of the community. So I would hope as we're enrolling in the studies that we continue providing masks and we continue providing education, hand sanitizer, you know, to the individuals participating in the vaccine studies. So they actually, the infection rates actually are lower than what we expect in the population. That may make the study harder, but at the same time, it will be the right thing for the community. Uh, and I think that will increase the trust. The other thing is, you know, I wanted to ask you is if a question here says, you know, how about positive PCR test two months after infection? Are you in their clinic requiring people who've been infected to have a negative PCR test before they return to the clinic?
0: We are not. We. Um, uh our First off, uh, we have two two issues, two w- responses to that. The first is if somebody needs to be seen, um, we see them. And we actually have a separate area of the clinic for any individual who has a, uh, a recent uh, known infection, um, a positive screen, such as a cough, fever, diarrhea, and so on, um, where we have our staff outfitted with appropriate PPE. So folks um, who have um, either medical needs um, with symptoms or even need to get um, to pick up uh, uh, prescriptions or um, you know any other sort of vital uh, uh, things from the clinic, that can happen in a PPE-rich uh, environment. Um, but the second thing is if somebody doesn't need to come in, we are not um, requiring them to have uh, negative testing. We're using the um, CDC criteria um, uh, that are similar to the return to work criteria that someone can enter our main portion of the clinic um, uh, uh, after 10 days and uh, with uh, three days afebrile and reducing symptoms. And so um, so we are not, uh, uh, I think the challenges, we, we don't have the, the testing capability and the staff and, and I don't see the benefit, honestly.
1: I, I agree with you. And in fact, I think the literature is clearly showing us that people that remain positive two and three months out are actually not infectious. And they're, I think we still don't understand exactly why they remain positive at whether this is you know part virus excretion i i i'm recently seeing in the hospital this lady who's in her late 70s and she tested positive in may she was sick in may she became negative and now she's back in the hospital again but she is you know she started therapy for her arthritis for rheumatoid arthritis and started immunosuppressive therapy and i think she you know, she's totally asymptomatic, but she's got a positive PCR, but I think her positive PCR may, may have been precipitated by the treatment. I, I really have, have trouble understanding. And I think there's a lot of us, a lot still for us to learn. So one of the other issues is, you were also one of the very first clinics, even, you know, in, for us at Grady, but in other places that very rapidly implemented universal masking in the clinic. And I think, you know, when I think about being in the clinic, how do you, uh, how do you ensure that, that the staff really buys into, you know, not knowing, I mean, you, cause you talk about symptom screening, but we know there's a fair number of asymptomatic transmission. So how do we, how, what do we do in a clinic environment to ensure that our, that our you know, our, uh, our waiting rooms are safe, our clinics are safe, our staff is safe. And I know that you have put a lot of effort into really ensuring the, the safety of our staff.
0: Yeah, no. I'll say, um, early on, um, we did have some of our staff um, become infected. And, um, and, you know, that I think was devastating for us. Um, And it became very, uh, our concern was always for safety and we wanted people to come to work feeling safe. Um, And uh, that uh, really underscored that for us as well. So um, I think uh, uh, as quickly as Sort of the science evolved and it became clear that there was the possibility of asymptomatic spread and so on. Um, We did um, uh, very quickly have universal masking. uh, And then in addition, um, we screened every single uh, healthcare worker in our clinic. Um, uh, First by phone, we called every employee, and we have more than 200 employees um, over a, a one day stretch to inquire, and any soft symptom. Um, We kept them um, out, got a commitment to to, not dock their pay for that and we kept them out until it was either clear that they were um, improving and uh, this was unlikely to be consistent with COVID or it could be something of concern, in which case we uh, kept people out for a longer period of time. And so that was very, very critical initially and the staff having personal conversations I think felt um, safe with uh, that as well as universal masking and then we um, uh, again uh, introduced symptom screening and temperature screening at the door. Um, shortly after that, we were able to introduce universal masking for all of our patients as well. But it took, you know, honestly, a second to get the supplies of masks that we needed in order to do that. Um, in addition, uh, but uh, I was, you know, I, I'm gratified when the staff tells me that they feel safe in our um, in our clinic, um, uh, and uh, and again, particularly because we have different areas for folks with symptoms and without, and and you can't get uh, we, we can't pull our full weight. We can't do what we do unless people feel that they're in an environment that's safe to do that.
1: And I think that that's so important because as you know we have also implemented universal masking here at Grady and we I, I, I take uh, the safety of our of our providers of our residents of our nurses very very seriously and and because of the things we've done the risk has actually lowered. Now the challenge is to tell people with the people that we see getting infected is not in healthcare, they're getting infected in the community. And we have to remind people, look, you know, in the hospital you're safe, but when you go outside, if you go out to a party because the bars are open and the restaurants are open, that's where you're going to get infected. And we need you to understand that there's a pandemic. And now, so the challenge is now the universal masking, not in the hospital, but in the community, that right. is becoming really complicated. Right? Uh, right. That's where the education is. So, so it's a good question here, and I want to mention, you know, what is being done as far as linking to the All of Us uh, research database. And I think it's interesting that it, this mentioned because uh, Kelly Gibo from All of Us has actually been in touch with us, and and we are going to look in ways to actually link uh, the All of Us uh, research study into the vaccine studies because I think there's a lot to be learned and there's a lot to be to be uh, an opportunity to really partner there in a significant way. Uh, I think one of the questions around vaccines what happens when people get incarcerated? Well, we know that jails have been a a site where where outbreaks have occurred and we have discussed this. Uh, At this point in time, the NIH is not interested on on having uh, incarcerated persons be enrolled in studies, but they are acknowledged that if people get incarcerated, once they participate in the study, they can continue being the study. So I I still need to see the final protocol, but I think that will be a a good thing to do. uh, you know, anti-vax, I think the COVID vaccine is the first vaccine that hasn't been uh, launched and, and already has an anti-vax movement attached to it. And I think there's a lot that we need to do to educate uh, uh, the community. And I, again, uh, uh, Saad Omer and others that I've known have working very hard at trying to achieve this. Uh, I think I think it's time to, to maybe talk about uh, a, a final thought around issues related to, to to mental health, substance abuse, because I think as we see people being confined and we see people staying at home, anxiety, depression, we're beginning to see mental health issues and I think being overlooked. And I'm afraid that we will also be, you know, be seeing increase in substance abuse. So how are we linking to mental health professionals and substance abuse in the management of our patients?
0: Yeah, no, I um, I think that's a huge challenge for many clinics. I'm lucky in that we have mental health professionals within the clinic, and I will say again, this is an area where telemedicine has been a game changer. That's a group that doesn't need to physically examine their patients. Um, and uh, uh, while there, it can sometimes be a barrier if the patient doesn't have a safe place or private place to engage in a mental health televisit, um, that's an area where uh, the uptake has been substantial. And, in fact, we've had more mental health uh, visits, um, uh, probably in part related, I think, to anxiety about COVID um, uh, through this. But I think we need to continue to have those resources available and to have more mental health um, opportunities available. Because, like I say, I'm lucky we have mental health professionals in the building, but it is still very hard to find access to mental health professionals for many of the clinics um, around the country similarly um, with substance use disorders and to find uh, medication assisted therapy programs and so on. And so um, th- this question um, uh, mentions the stigma related to the intersectionalities between HIV and COVID and mental health and, and uh, substance use disorder and so on. And there's there's no question that's very real stigma for any single one of those is profoundly challenging. Um, I uh, didn't actually appreciate how challenging the COVID stigma was until uh, I had a patient just um, uh, reduced to tears when I told her that I was going to test her for COVID, and I was concerned, um, and she, you know, said anything, anything but that, um, uh, you know. I, it, and it was just, it was so um, clear to me that uh, uh, the stigma related with COVID is is uh, really um, poisonous as well. Um, I, I think those are very dangerous intersections, and they're dangerous um, to keeping people out of healthcare.
1: And I think the intersection is, uh, I've seen that with, with COVID as well. And as people are afraid they're going to find to be positive, and then will have to be isolated. They're not going to be able to keep their job, and and they're not be able to feed their children. And so it really becomes a an issue of having a safety net, right? And having the ability to 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 be able to isolate from a financial standpoint. And I think that's one of the issues that I think we see. And I mean, you know, the ability to isolate, the ability to shelter in place you know, it's a luxury, it's it's a privilege. And I think we tend to forget that, that those of us that are able to telework and to shelter in place and protect ourselves are, are privileged because of that. And I think we need to understand the challenges that people have sometimes complying with what we think is sensible public health.
0: No, that's, uh, that's 100% true. And you know, I think um, as again, we're sort of coming to the end of our time. That's such a take home message is um, how important our public health infrastructure is, how much it needs to be resourced. But how we need to really, again, look hard and not look at the easy answers of, uh, but how are we going to address disparities and how are we going to get our public health infrastructure out to the communities that need it and how um, are we going to provide the kinds of services um, taken to the people that are necessary in a stigma free and a non stigmatizing way. And we haven't learned that lesson completely yet with HIV. We've been trying to learn that lesson. And I think, uh, again, we need to learn the same lesson over and over and over again.
1: So we've got five minutes left, so I'm going to ask you uh, some closing uh, comments. And I'm going to just basically say ask you to, you know, pull out your crystal ball and say, you know, a year from today, what do you think we're going to be, and in, in, in what do you see, what would be your, your best and your worst sort of scenario a year from now?
0: Wow. Um, well, my best scenario is that we have crested COVID, um, we have controlled COVID, that uh, there is a somewhat effective vaccine, and um, and that we are again moving forward on ending the epidemic, but with some new tools in our toolbox um, that actually may enhance um, some of our ability, um, uh, and that we will begin to have ways to uh, to have greater prep uptake and greater uh, uh, uptake uh, to to clinics that are not all brick and mortar. To me, that would be the best case scenario is that we learn some lessons from COVID, we get past COVID and we move forward um, in ways that can be really helpful. I hope that it's not the worst case scenario that we're still struggling with COVID and that we're losing patients to care and HIV um, and that stigma increases and um, and that we're seeing deaths due to both diseases.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I would, I would just also add that I think uh, I almost would love to see when we get out of COVID, a sense of what happened after, you know, the second world war, there's a, there's a renewed uh, desire of a country to rethink, to a to Renaissance in our ability to think about about disparities and to think about when we do the autopsy of, of, the, of, of the outbreak, we just not only talk about the failures, but we talk about the failures of a society, right? And what happened and what are the issues that we should have taken care in the first place that we haven't, and maybe, we really rethink about, I would say, we make access to care, you know, universal. We stop having this discussion about, you know, you know, who has access and who doesn't. We, we get rid of the uninsured. And we really put a lot of emphasis in preventative care. Somebody initially talked about diabetes and talked about obesity, how do we manage that? You know, we manage it by preventative, we manage it by improving health in the community, by improving food in the community, are things that we do outside the clinic. And I think investing in decreasing disparities is something that I would hope happens as a result of COVID. That when people say to me, I want to be back where we were before, I said, no, I want to be in a better place than where we were before, because where we were before is not a good place. We want to really move forward to a much better place. I think, you know, the bad part, it would be, as you say, that we're still here. But I also think that the sense of, of uh, sort of like, you know, the way we have think. Taken HIV. At some point in time, HIV, we, we kind of forgot about it, right? We we just let it be. And we we were at a country that had a million and so people with HIV, 30,000, 40,000 new infections, and nobody cared. And I, I just worry that our society at some point in time, when it's the most vulnerable, when it's the people dying are not the people that look like me, we stop caring. And I, to me that will be the, the worst part, right? That that COVID becomes a disease of the poor, of the of the of the of the underserved and we stop caring. And, and that to me would just be a devastating because it would really show that a society a society that stops caring is not a society that I want to be part of. And that, and that to me would just be so disappointing. So my hope is that we can change where we are and think forward in a much more productive and, and, and equitable way as we think about the future.
0: No, I, I, I certainly concur. And I uh, certainly hope that the national conversation we're having about race um, is helpful as well um, to uh, improving healthcare disparities that is, that, is, that is Absolutely across the board
1: well listen it's been really uh, fun talk to you about this and uh, and maybe it's time to wrap it up
0: I think so So in some uh, shameless plug here for IIS USA, here are some of the future events that will be um, held um, that uh, uh, you can register for, uh, including COVID-19 updates. And um, and the the local meetings, the uh, regional meetings um, that are now all virtual, um, you can see the East Coast and the Midwest ones are coming up in July. along with a host of webinars. Thank you all for um, joining us in this conversation. Um, I've had a terrific time talking with you, Carlos, as I always do. Um, I hope uh, others had a a good time uh, listening to us.
1: Thank you, Greg, always talking to you.